story from the Old Testament, one that is uh, maybe often misunderstood because of um, its association with Jonah and a whale. Um, and today we're actually going to um, get into that particular section where the fish is talked about. Um, but uh, just as a, as a preparation for our, our time in the Word today, I do want to just remind you that this story is written in a context for Israel, and God has preserved it for us. And uh, it is a story that is about a particular prophet, a, a man of God. So we're talking here about someone who is a believer in God, Yahweh, who has served him, and yet he does not want to do what God is calling him to do. And friends, there's a sense in which we are all Jonah, because there are times in our lives that we don't want to do what God is calling us to do. And so we, we come to this, this book with an understanding that God wants to say something to us, that he wants to minister to us, I think, as a church, but as well as uh, individuals. Because we can find ourselves walking with God, then all of a sudden, God will direct us through his word or through some circumstances that makes it very, very clear that he wants us to be faithful in some way. And we might have some reason, some, some bitterness, um, some prejudice, some uh, desire that would say, no, God, this is not what I want. And we would say, God, I'm going to do my own thing. And you try as best you can to squelch him and to do what you want to do, and, and really, in a sense, what you're doing is you're running from God. You're saying, God, I don't want to take my responsibility as one of your children. I want to do my own thing my way. Now, growing up, um, I always enjoyed swimming, and when I got to college, one of the things I had an opportunity to do during the summer was to work at a camp. My first summer at camp, I worked as a counselor, um, which is really, really hard work. And so if you've, if you've ever been a camp counselor, raise your hand, anyone? You guys know what I'm talking about, especially when you have little junior kids, okay? We had this little secret, and that is before Saturday came, you actually had to go into the kids' suitcases and stir around the clothes and throw a little bit of dirt in there just so mom had an idea that little Johnny actually changed his clothes during the week, okay? So just little tricks like that that you, you, know, you kind of came up with as a camp counselor. My second and third year working at the camp, though, um, I was asked to be the waterfront director, which mean, meant that I had to get a, you know, a life-saving degree, and not just a, as a lifeguard, but I had to have what's called a, a WSI, which is a water safety instructor um, degree, which meant I could be in charge of a whole waterfront as well as teach and train people to be lifeguards. And so I went through that whole process. It was great. But I learned a lot of things. And as a lifeguard, you learn some things about people in water. And as a, as a lifeguard, my job was to sit on a chair and look cool, right? That was it. You know, you kind of do the, you know, the thing like that. And, and, you know, I always had a cup of coffee in my hand, which is kind of strange. But um, it's just it's one of those things, yeah. But, but always, even in all the fun that I was having, as a lifeguard, I'm always looking around, and I'm, I'm just hovering over all of the people that are in the water because there are certain signs that you look for that let you know there's, there's something going on here, and this person may be drowning. Now, people don't typically choose to drown. They don't usually say, well, I'm out swimming in the water. I think I'm going to drown now. 
right, usually happens by accident. Um, and unless it's some kind of a, you know, a head blow and someone you know, gets knocked unconscious, most of the time the behavior of people when they drown is very, very similar. All right, and I will demonstrate it for you right now. Okay? It's like this. Okay, because they're, they're waving their arms up and down, flopping as much as they can, because all they're trying to do is to raise themselves up out of the water and suck some more air. And if you happen to be around them, look out, because you are just another object to push up on. Because what has happened at a certain kind of a pivot point that takes place, and it's a pivot point of panic. And when that panic sets in. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how many people love you. You're sucking for air, and there's nothing that you want except for that. And it's just, it's panic on display for everyone. And I've seen it. You know, kids are out there playing, having a great time, and all of a sudden, you see the arms start flapping. And as soon as you see that as a lifeguard, boom, you're out there. Because you've got to get there quickly, because they're going to go down pretty soon. Interestingly enough, Statistics show that most drownings take place in less than two feet of water. I mean, if people just would think, they wouldn't drown. And oftentimes, though, they don't think because they're panicking so much. Okay? Today, we come to a passage of Scripture that is laced with panic. And it is a passage of Scripture about a prophet that is under the disciplined hand of God. And oftentimes, friends, when we are being disciplined by God, we can get to the place of panic. Now, one of the things I have learned as a pastor is always be careful what you're going to preach on because God has a way of wanting to teach you the passage that you're going to be preaching on. And he will, he will do something in your life. He will create some issues. He will allow you to have some whatever experience so that you can somehow relate to this. And this past week was a hard week for me and my family, just relating to my daughter going to school. We had something thrown in the 11th hour, and it was like, ah, oh, what are we going to do? And we just kind of felt like we were just brought to this, this brink. And, you know, and then, you know, in God's way, he took care of the issue. But it was all a learning experience, I think, for me to be able to enter this passage. Because here is Jonah. And if you remember the story, Jonah just didn't appear, you know, in the water. He got there by virtue of his disobedience and his stubborn, willful defiance of where God was telling him to go. He's telling him to go to Nineveh and to be a prophet, but to preach a message of judgment. But Instead of doing that, what does he do? He goes down to Joppa, and we all know, remember, Joppa is a very famous city because I lived near there, right? So he went to Joppa, um, and from Joppa, he got on a boat and went out um, toward Tarshish, which was the complete opposite direction of, um, of Nineveh. Now, what we find, though, in the book of, of, of Jonah is that the story ultimately is not about Jonah. Did you know that? It's not about Jonah, it's about someone else that we think is really, really important. And he goes by the name of God, okay? And it is about Jonah. I mean, he's the character, but he's not the only character in the story. Some people would say, ah, Jonah's just a parable. Well, if it's just a parable, then who is God in this story? Because parables don't talk about God being in the story. And this 
story tells us some things about God. But some things I want you to note about this particular um, book, all right? The, the expression Lord, which is the Hebrew uh, English equivalent of the word Yahweh, okay, which is what Jews would call God, um, that's used 25 times. So when you see L-O-R-D in caps, in all caps like that, that's Yahweh, then God is used 13 times, Lord God is used one time, and there's, so there's a total of 39 times that God is mentioned in 44 verses. A few more times than Jonah is mentioned. Let's put it that way. We are being taught here in this book some things about God. We're being taught about who he is, what he's like, how he thinks, how he behaves, what his qualities are, what his tolerance level is, how he deals with people who, who shake their fist at him or who stiff-arm him. How does he deal with his own children? And ultimately, that's where we're going to go here because we would consider Jonah to be a follower of God, right? And typically, a prophet of God should be considered someone who is pretty high on the level of maturity, should be, before God. All right? So, as we, as we press on in this story, I, I would like for us to see three aspects of God three dynamics of God, three ways that God interacts with Jonah in particular. And here's the first one. I want us to see God's provision over Jonah's discipline. God's provision over Jonah's discipline. And what we have here in this particular passage, beginning at verse 17 of chapter 1, is we have in verse 17 and then in verse 10, we have these two bookends and I want you to notice what it says. Verse 17. This is after the sailors have thrown him into the water, right? And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now verse 10, the end of this passage. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So it's like God is is carrying Jonah through his discipline with both hands. One hand that appoints the fish to swallow Jonah, and another hand that is speaking to the fish to vomit Jonah out. Let me ask you a question. Is God in control of this situation? Absolutely. Now, we're not going to take time. I'm not going to tell you stories about what kind of fish this could be. I'm not going to tell you stories of people who have lived inside a fish for three days and, and justify and verify that this is possible. There's historical record for that. But as someone who believes that God's word is God's word, I take God's word at face value. On another time, we could jump into the, you know, to defending the scriptures and stuff. We don't need to because this is God on display. This is a miracle. This is God doing whatever he needs to do to accomplish his purposes in the life of his children. He appoints a fish. He appoints a fish to swallow Jonah, and he appoints a fish ultimately to vomit Jonah out of its belly. And so these two bookends to Jonah's discipline revealed the, the constant care that we are all under when going through trial or discipline. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt distant from God? 
Have you, have you ever felt abandoned by God? Or, or felt that, that you, can, you just can't talk to him, or he's not listening, or maybe even he's fed up with you? That's how Jonah, I'm sure, was feeling at that point of time. I mean, you know, when was the last time you woke up in the belly of a fish or even knew that's where you were? I don't know that Jonah knew where he was. I mean, you know, wake up and say, oh, I must be in the side of a fish. I mean, you know, how do you determine that? Keith would understand what that is. I don't know that Jonah would understand that. There he is, in the middle of this fish, in the belly of this fish, probably thinking to himself, what is God doing to me? Why am I still alive? Remember, he told the sailors, the reason the storm is here is because of me and my disobedience. Throw me overboard, and you'll be safe. And they threw him overboard, and what happened? The wind calmed down. And he was saying, throw me overboard, and I'm going to die. He was expecting to die. But he finds himself in the belly of the fish. Maybe he's thinking to himself, what horrible suffering does God have in store for me now? I thought I was going to drown. Now I'm going to get squished to death. Right? Get this. Just because Jonah felt that God had abandoned him or was distant or was fed up with him doesn't mean that it is true. Has God abandoned him? Absolutely not. The disciplined hand of God does not mean that God has abandoned you. In fact, if anything... It is testimony to the fact that God cares for you and loves you. Okay? Verse 17 and verse 10 are testimony to the fact that because God is our Father, He disciplines us as sons. And I read earlier Hebrews chapter 12. Turn back there if you would, please, because I think this, this passage really fleshes this out. Hebrews chapter 12 Verse, uh, well, verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Please, 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 please. Say it again. Please hear this. If you are a child of God, there is no sin that you can commit that God removes his favor toward you. If that would be true, that would mean that God would then have to remove the righteousness of Christ that covers you and protects you, which was accomplished by what was paid for on the cross. His grace and his favor is just as much directed to you when you're walking in sin as when you are walking in obedience. You say, well, how can that be? Because when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he didn't die on the cross and say, well, I, I, you know, I've, I've covered your sin uh, only when you're not sinning. I've covered your sin completely. My blood has paid for you. And because of the cross, we're, we're told it's not just that we have, you know, our sins are forgiven, but we are now also clothed. 
Our dirty clothes were taken off. But we now have clean, precious, beautiful clothes that are the righteousness of Christ that clothe us and protect us, and that is true for eternity. It doesn't change when we sin because that sin has been paid for. So even Jonah, stiff-arming God, stubborn and defiant before God, is still the object of God's love and his care and his favor and his grace. Now friends, that should encourage us. But our experience and how we feel tells us a different story. <laughs> because we don't feel connected to God. We don't, we don't feel like he listens. Why? It's because we sin. It's because we don't embrace the realities of what it means to be in Christ. Because we are afraid that somehow our sin has undone what Christ promises has taken place. So get this, first of all. God is the author of our discipline. He is the author of Jonah's discipline. He's the one that provided it. He's the one that created it. He's the one that manipulated his creation to swallow Jonah. He is the one that is at work disciplining here. But get this. In Jonah's case, it didn't start in the belly of the fish. Remember, God's discipline began as soon as Jonah said no to God. And he started to go on that journey. And remember, it seems like everything just went so smoothly, right? And God sometimes disciplines us by allowing us to go the direction that we want to go. Saying, you know what, you're not going to listen to me? I'll let you go. But understand, every step you take down that path is taking you further and further down a path of discouragement, of trouble, and of discipline. So he goes to Joppa, finds the boat, pays the fare, gets on the boat, and then things start happening. So again, it was the wind that God manipulated, and the wind ultimately created the storm. That was all part of God's discipline. The captain coming down to, to speak to him was all part of God's discipline. The sailors getting together and casting lots is all part of God's discipline. The sailors, once they find out that he is the issue, are speaking to him and asking questions. And every question was still this, this arrow of God's discipline coming at Jonah and saying, listen to me, listen to me, obey me. I haven't left you alone. I'm still your father. And finally he realizes what's going on. And rather than obey God, he would rather die. And even with that statement and act of defiance, God is using this as a discipline tool to bring his, his prophet back to him. So guys, don't, here's one of the principles I think is really important for us to understand. We must be careful that we don't relegate God's discipline to the extremes. It's always the big thing, right? You know, oh man, you know, I don't have any finances for my bill. It must be the discipline hand of God. It could be. But maybe it was the fact that, you know, you had an opportunity back here to do something, but you didn't. And that was also part of God's discipline because he was trying to fashion you and trying to direct you in a certain way. 
So it's not always the big things that we say, oh, these are bad things that have happened to me. They could be little things along the way that we're just ignoring, we're just brushing aside, that are all part of God's discipline in your life. God's discipline was just as much in play on the journey to Joppa as it was while Jonah is in the belly of the fish. Listen, God uses fish. Um, In this particular story, he uses a storm, he uses sailors, he uses a worm, he uses a plant. He uses all of them as means to accomplish his purposes in his children. And if you kind of look a little bit more through Scripture, you'll find out that he uses things like a stone to kill a giant. He uses a current in a river to accomplish his purposes with a little baby that we know by the name of Moses. He uses um, an arrow to bring down a king. He can use a cult already prepared to host the Messiah going into Jerusalem. God manipulates and uses his creation to accomplish his purposes. Now for us, it's even the mundane things of life that he uses. He uses a flat tire. He uses forgotten keys. All you husbands out there, when you can't find your keys, you can say, thank you, Lord, of reminding me of your sovereign purposes in my life. He uses a bad grade, a tarnished credit, an unset alarm clock, a disobedient child, an angry husband, a missing password, a misplaced envelope, a long line at Togo's. See, I had a really rough week, just so you know. And you could add your own things in there. He uses all of those things as means and mechanisms to accomplish his purposes in our lives. And he does that also when it comes to his discipline of us. And listen, he does that because we're sinful creatures who still harbor selfish desires and pursue plans that don't conform to his will. So we must always be asking ourselves, what is God doing? What is he teaching me? Am I under his discipline? Is this trial the result of my disobedience? When I'm, when I'm counseling someone, oftentimes what I do is, is I keep a little, a little box on a piece of paper that if I'm taking notes, and it's called the TLC, the Theological Learning Curve. And I'm asking myself, what is, what is God teaching this individual? He's brought them through these circumstances. What is he teaching them? Because God, no matter what we're going through, is in the business of teaching us things about himself, about his truth, about his ways. He wants us to see that. And and if it means us going through discipline, if it means us going through trial to learn those things, God's okay with that. Did you know that? He's okay with you going through some difficulty because ultimately it's for your good. So the swallowing and the vomiting are the hands of God in the careful, loving discipline of his child, Jonah, the stubborn and defiant prophet of Yahweh. So not only is God the author of our discipline, he is also the caregiver of our discipline. He hasn't left. (laughs) He hasn't abandoned. He's there all the time, 
And if you're one of God's children, even though it feels like he's abandoned you, the reality is he has never, ever, ever done that. You guys remember when you learned to ride a bike? Those of you that did learn to ride a bike. You probably had your dad behind you while you were riding on those little training wheels. And then the training wheels came off, and dad would go along with you as you were riding, and he put his hands on you a little bit. And then a little bit later, maybe the next day, another time, he'd put his hands on you, and he'd be right there, but he'd let go, and he'd let you ride by yourself, but he was always right there, right? Right? Now, what about when you learn how to swim? Now, I know some people, this is how they teach their kids how to swim. Johnny, come here. <laughs> right? They let them go in there and flop around a little bit, and they jump in, and they lift them up, because they, they just, apparently that's how they want to do it. But no, typically, <laughs> typically, you know, you want to kind of nurture them in this, and you want to make sure that, that, that they know that you're there. Here's, here's the reality, guys. God repeatedly tells us that he is there. Can you hear this? We don't have to pray for God to be present with us today. Why? Because he is. Now, it's good for us to be reminded of his presence here today. He is always with us, and we know that. But we may not feel like it. Or because of our sin, we don't want him present with us because we're ashamed of our sin. Okay? But he is this, this caregiver of our discipline. And friends, that should be an encouragement to us. And that should also be an encouragement to us, maybe if, if we're going through the discipline, but especially if we are, are parents of children who are going through discipline. It's not just, oh, they're going through discipline. But guess what? God is there every step of the way. Even as tough and as hard as it might be. And ultimately, God may have to take that individual, that child, to the brink where they have no other place to look than to God himself. That's not where we want our children to be, right? But we can be confident that God is still at work. He hasn't abandoned. All right? Secondly, I want you to notice God's provoking of Jonah's deliverance. All of this discipline is meant to provoke Jonah to repentance and ultimately to his deliverance. Notice verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Now why does that strike you funny? Maybe the word funny isn't the right word. Ironic. In chapter 1, what does the captain say to Jonah? You know, everyone else is praying. Why don't you pray to your God? Mm-mm, not going to do it. Not even a mention. Chapter 1, or sorry, chapter 2, verse 1. Jonah, boom, Jonah's praying. Something happened. Something took place. He's now in the belly of this fish. There's a story about three pastors who were talking about prayer. And um, we're really talking about the posture of prayer, the the best posture of, of prayer. And you might have different attitudes about that. One pastor said, you know, it's all in the hands. You know, it's just, it's the right positioning of the hands together and being pointed up to heaven and God receives prayers best when your hands are pointed in the right place. The other pastor tried to be, I think, 
wiser than that, said, no, it's not just in the hands, it's also in the knees. And, you know, how callous are your knees and the positioning of those knees. That's really, really important. Um, another pastor said, well, those are all really, really good, but I think God really, really pays attention when you're face down. And when you're face down, it's just a position of absolute humility before God, and therefore he is going to hear you clearly. Well, while these three pastors were talking, there was a telephone repairman who was up on a post. And he yelled down and says, no, no, let me tell you the best posture for prayer. is when you're hanging upside down from 40 feet down a post, that is the best posture you can be in for prayer. And here we have Jonah in one sense in his best posture for prayer. But God had to take him there in the belly of a fish. Let's read again this passage here. Look at verse 2 saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the, to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I want you to notice, first of all, in verse 2, we have this, this parallelism going on here. He says, out of my distress. Well, what does that distress look like? Well, this is poetical language, and the parallel here describes that distress as Sheol. And Sheol, 95% of the time, is referring to this, this place of the dead, the grave. So what, what, what uh, Jonah is really saying here is this. I really have been taken to this place where I am facing death. I am at the brink of death. I'm looking at death in its face. That's where God had to take him. That's the position that he found himself in. So first... As we look at this prayer, I want you to notice the content of Jonah's prayer. The content of Jonah's prayer from this place of almost death. Let me read it one more time. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. In my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me in my distress. I called upon the Lord to my God. I cried for help for, uh, from his temple. He heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. I said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Okay, I didn't read that passage. But what I did read was the Psalms. 
(laughs) This is what he was praying. Does this sound similar to you? Just like the stuff that was right there that he's praying. What is he doing? Well, you see, this is proof that Jonah really isn't a true book that was written by God because men took bits and pieces of the Psalms and put them together to formulate Jonah's prayer toward God. Is that what happened here? Let me ask you a question. When you are in distress and you are praying to God, what do you often do? You remind God of what? Things that he says in his word, right? Things like, Lord, you have begun a good work in me and promised to be faithful to complete it, right? Or, there is no trial that I am facing which is unique to me and you are faithful to provide a way through the trial with your help and direction. Or, I am your workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Or, you won't leave me or forsake me. Or, whoever believes in me will not perish. Or, Lord, I am confessing my sin and you are faithful and just to forgive me. Or, you cast my sin as far as the east is from the west. You don't remember my sin anymore. They're buried in the depths of the sea. All I've done is taken God's word and put it in a prayer. And that's what we do. So what is Jonah doing? He's praying God's word. He's praying the Psalms. He's a prophet of God. He should know these things, and he evidently does. And in the midst of his discipline, his crisis, and his his face of death, he prays God's word, friends. All the more reason for us, number one, to be in God's Word and to memorize God's Word and feed on it. And when we go to God to pray it, because when you're praying God's Word, what are you praying? You're typically praying promises about God's character that you're holding on to or promises about what He says that He is either doing or not doing in you, right? I will never leave you or forsake you. Well, it's talking about his character, but it's also talking about his relationship with you, his promise to you. And those are precious. So God is this wonderful God who who gives us this picture in the midst of this discipline of a child of God who's coming to terms with their sin, who comes face to face with death, but is praying the very word of God to the God, the creator of the universe. Next, I want you to notice the ingredients of his prayer, the ingredients of Jonah's prayer. And we're going to begin with honesty. I think you find a lot of honesty in this passage. Are you honest with God when you pray? Do you tell him the truth? I came across this story about uh, Donald Grain Barnhouse, pastor from years ago, um, and his conversation with his daughter. Just listen as I read it. On one occasion, his daughter came, had come to him with a request that he had denied. Well then, what do you want me to do, she asked. He told her what he wanted and then went on with his work. She remained standing in front of him. At length, Mrs. Barnhouse called to the daughter from another room. Where are you? What are you doing, she asked. The daughter replied, I'm waiting for daddy to tell me what he wants me to do. 
At this point, Barnhouse raised his head and said to her, whatever you are doing, you are not waiting to find out what I want you to do. I have told you what I want you to do, but you do not like it. You're actually waiting to see if you can get me to change my mind. If you have kids, you know exactly what he's talking about there, right? And if we are honest, many times we go to God not seeking his will or guidance, but trying to get affirmation for what we want to do that we may actually know is contrary to his will. And sometimes we will go so many times or in such a way that what we're looking for is this kind of a religious peace. God gave me peace about this. And those who know you and those who know God's truth and know what it is you're praying about are saying to themselves, you can't have peace over this. Because if you do have peace over this, this is false peace. Because you're violating God's purposes. You see, we can be dishonest with God. So, let's read a little bit again, going back again into this passage and see what it is that he's saying that is honest. He says, I called out the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. Verse 4 says, "Then then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Just a couple of things about his honesty. First of all, um, he is honest um, that he is in, min- in, in misery. Okay? In other words, it's not like, hey, I'm going to Tarshish. I'm going to Tarshish. Is that where he's going anymore? No. He now is acknowledging, you know what, I am miserable. And I am in the belly of this fish. And I am face to face with death. And what does he say in verse 4? He says, I am driven away from your sight. Now, Yes, he knows that God is everywhere. We established that before. Can't get away from God's presence. But there's something about about being in a place of of disobedience. And he's acknowledging the fact, you know what, God, you are right. And I'm being honest with you about where I am right now. Secondly, why I am there. It's not just that he is there, but that God is the cause of his misery. It's not just that he's miserable. But he's recognizing that God is the cause of his misery. Okay, there was a great storm, right? There were sailors, and the sailors did throw him into the water. Agreed? But what does he say? Notice what he says. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Verse 3, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, And the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Ah, wait a second. I thought it was the sailors that threw you in there. No. He knows that the sailors were simply instruments in God's hands to accomplish his purposes in Jonah's life. That God ultimately was behind it. He's seeing the bigger picture now. He's seeing this God of the universe, this God that he uh, he was stubbornly defiant of, still at work, and that he is responsible for his misery. When running from God, there is no better place to fall than into the hands of your Savior, your Creator, your merciful and forgiving God. And He's come to the place here in honesty, saying, I am miserable and I'm here because of you. Not in the sense of because of you, but in the sense of I know that you are behind this. So there's a real honesty before God here, right? Secondly, 
um, I think the other, uh, the second thing we need to, to see here is what I'm calling confession. Go down to verse, um, verse 8. Because we can be honest about our misery and that God has caused it, but we can still be angry with God, right? What Jonah needs now is to take ownership of his sin before God. And that's what we find in verse 8. He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope in steadfast love. Now, an immediate reading or just a cursory reading of this passage, when you come to that particular verse of Scripture, you might think, oh, he's talking about the Ninevites. They're idol worshipers. Or he's talking about the sailors, because we saw the sailors in chapter 1 praying to their own gods with little g's, right? Calling out to their various gods. See, they're idol worshipers. Hmm. But who else might be an idol worshiper in this story? It's a person by the name of Jonah. And, interestingly enough, the nation that he has been prophesying to is being prophesied to by another prophet by the name of Hosea who is calling on them and giving messages of warning and judgment because they are playing the harlot by worshiping other gods rather than the god Yahweh. Many times a prophet not only speaks for God, but oftentimes actually lives as an example representing the whole nation that they are a prophet for. That's what Hosea did. Remember, he, he ended up marrying a harlot, right? As a picture of what? Israel is doing the same thing. Here's Jonah, who in the same sense is confessing you know what? Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope and steadfast love. He's speaking about himself, and he's speaking about his own people. It is a confession. Idolatry is always vain. It's always empty. Now, as I said, this is not a reference to the Ninevites or the sailors or to, even to the ship. It is a reference to Israel corporately and Jonah personally. Friends, we, just, we need to recognize this, that God wants us to take ownership of our sinfulness and what we have done. Jonah and his idolatry ultimately find out is his prejudice against those people. He doesn't want them to be the recipients and the beneficiaries of God's love and God's grace. I also want you to notice then God's or his, thank, his thanksgiving. We might even say even his praise, because it does talk about with a voice of thanksgiving. I think even some translations translate a song of thanksgiving. It says, with a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. So what does Jonah have to be thankful for? <laughs> I mean, is it, is it his warm personality? You know, is it his wonderful complexion? Which probably is being deteriorated every moment he's in there, right? Um, I know this is, you know, Mediterranean, but, you know, it's not Avino. It's not, you know, it's not like, you know, stuff from the, the, the salt, uh, you know, the, from the Red Sea, yeah, or the Dead Sea, I should say. It's, it's not like that. That's not what's going on. You'll find, I think one of the things, is not there in the text, but you'll find when, when Jonah ends up being vomited out, he probably caught a lot of attention, Right? I mean, he probably, you know, looked a little strange, and he may have been blistered or bleached or something like that. Now, the last time I was in the belly of a fish, you know, uh, you understand what I'm saying. You know, your stomach has certain acids, and it may affect you. Um, and that's a side note, okay? 
It's a lovely thought, but it's a side note. All right, what does Jonah have to be thankful for? Is it, is it because that, um, you know, is it because he was anticipating God's mercy? Possibly. Because we know in this story that Jonah, one of his frustrations and why he was angry, why he didn't want to do it, was because he knew that God was a merciful God, right? We find that in chapter 4. I knew you were going to do this, God. I knew it! It's possible here that he knows that even God is going to be merciful to him. He hasn't been vomited out yet, so we can't be sure of that. I think what's going on here, though, is this. The song of thanksgiving is really because he is restored God. Now, friends, here's what we must see is really vitally important. Sometimes we can be more excited about physical restoration. You know, God providing finances, God providing good health, and God providing this and that. When we're actually really should be praising Him for who He is first. Okay? And that we are restored to Him. Because Maybe that health is a result of our sinfulness. Maybe not. Maybe it is. Maybe our financial situation is because of our sinfulness. Maybe, maybe not. Each person is different, right? But using those illustrations, ultimately we want to see God. We want to see him on display. We want to praise him for who he is. Not just be like, oh, isn't it great? I got this. Well, how about isn't this great because you have him? That's something to be thankful for. That's something to be praising him about. Notice verse 4 again. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Um, there's a question there as to, as to this last part here. There's the textual variance. Either I shall or how can I look upon your holy temple? And it's just really a, a question of, of, you know, I, I can be thankful because I'm restored now to you. Because ultimately he was facing death in the face as a disobedient child of God. Now he is looking death in the face as a repentant child of God. Is there a big difference? Absolutely. And then I think there's also what I'm calling humility. Look at verse 9 again. But I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Get your Bibles and turn to Jonah chapter 1 verse 16. Maybe you don't have to turn. Maybe it's just right there. Because he identifies here with the ungodly pagan sailors who are responding to what they have been experiencing by, who, by God demonstrating who he is. And verse 16 says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I don't think there's any coincidence here. Jonah, while in the belly of this fish, is saying the same thing that these sailors are saying or doing the same thing or at least wanting to. I don't think I don't think that Jonah could find, you know, a pig or a donkey or uh, a bull in the belly of this fish, okay? I mean, how could he sacrifice in the belly of the fish? It's a statement of this is what I will do. This is where my heart is. You understand that? But he's identifying himself with every man. Not just Israelites, but any man. And maybe there was this arrogance that was in his heart that God was unfolding here and saying, listen, my love 
is for them and my love is for you. And now he is coming to the place where he's saying, I'm going to worship you just like the sailors have been worshiping you. I'm going to worship you just like the common man is going to worship you. Just the fact that I am an Israelite does not mean I have any other privileges. doesn't make me any better. I'm still a sinful creature before you. And I think that's, that's really an expression of humility. And God sometimes will have to humble us through his discipline and expressions of humility before God are necessary to say, God, I don't deserve this. I really don't deserve this. I am no better than anyone else. And friends, we need to get to that place. And we need to get to the place where we're saying, you know what, I know I'm your child, God, but you know, if I feel like I have you know, said, well, you have to do this because I'm your child, well, hold on a second. Be careful with that. Except for the things that are promises for all of us. So there's humility. Here's the last part, though. God's power over Jonah's defiance. All of this has been coming to a crescendo. All of this has been coming to one statement in this account. One statement that God wants to to be screaming from this passage. So ever since Jonah began fighting God in his heart, this has been the driving force behind all of God's discipline, and God would not stop until Jonah recognizes this truth. And here's the truth. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach for me. No, I don't want those people to come to know you. I don't want them to receive your mercy and your grace. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Not to you, Jonah, but to the Lord. There's some things that I think are helpful here as we unpack this a little bit. Salvation here that's being talked about is not his salvation from the fish. He's still fish bait right now. All right? It's not salvation from uh, the salvation of the sailors that took place. This is the, the, the greatest kind of salvation that we can be talking about, and that is to ultimately come to the place where you are in right standing with God. This is what Spurgeon says here. I believe that this is Jonah's greatest theological lesson. He had learned great theology in a most unusual college. He had learned great theology in a most unusual college. And friends, in the middle of this belly, Jonah is recognizing that salvation cannot be manipulated, cannot be coerced, cannot be stopped by mankind. It is uniquely the responsibility of God himself. There's two aspects here that are helpful for us. First of all, here's what Jonah's learning. Because God's salvation is, uh, is the Lord, because it is the Lord, first of all, notice that it is sovereign. God is in charge of it. He's in control of it. He is the one who manipulates everything that is necessary so that someone can come to faith in him. Secondly, salvation is exclusive. There is no other Savior than Yahweh. There's no other Savior at all. The God who saves is not the God fashioned by postmodernism. And that postmodern God would be, well, you know, whoever your God might be. Kind of like when, you know, when, I, when I did, this is years ago when I did my life-saving thing, I did it at the YMCA. And it was a camp. They said, you know, we're going to pray now, and you just 
pray to whatever God you feel you want to pray to, and you know, all gods kind of all lead to the same place, and blah, 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 and whether it's him or her, it or what, you know, they all just kind of melt together, and ultimately we're all worshiping the same God. No, it's not the, the God of our political climate. And the God of our political climate is a God that is being representative, well, God of Islam and the God of Christianity and the God of Judaism are really all one and the same, aren't they? No, they're not. You shall have no other gods before me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, it's pretty strong language, right? No one comes to the Father except through me. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now listen, as we move to the New Testament, turn to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. We'll have it up here on the screen too, but I'll, you know, turn there and look and see the context. Here's Joseph being visited by an angel, and here's what the angel is saying. Mary, who will be your wife, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means Salvation comes from the Lord. God is screaming through the Old Testament that he is the one who is the author of salvation. He is the one that provides salvation. He is the one that, that you know, dishes salvation out. It is he alone who is in control of that. Now, friends, just hear me as I bring things to a close first thing I want you to hear is this. If you do not know the God, the creator of this universe, understand you cannot know him except that he desires to know you. And the fact that you're here is pretty good indication that he is seeking you. He's pursuing you. He wants to have you come to him and he's drawing you. And I've sat where you've sat and I have, I have experience the, the proddings of the Holy Spirit saying, listen to this and consider this and I fought them and I've mocked them and all those things. But you will not find satisfaction, you will not find salvation anywhere in this world except through the God of this universe. His name is Yahweh and he comes now in the person of his son Jesus Christ who died on the cross as that ultimate sacrifice once for all. And you, by trusting in that by putting your faith and trust in him can be the recipient of that salvation that's the first thing I want you to think about secondly I want you to think about this discipline even when it's severe has as its goal your complete restoration think about that discipline no matter where you are in your walk with God even when it's severe has as its goal your complete restoration. That's why we read Matthew 18, the whole you know, church discipline thing. Right? That's an act of love to restore people back to their relationship with God. And God uses discipline to get us to places where God wants us to be in our walk with him. Now here's a tough one. In all of our relationships, we must step back and rest completely on God's sovereignty and salvation. Now, I'm saying this because 
I think all of us, or a good number of us, have burdens and heartaches for people, either their family, their children, their brothers, their sisters, their moms and dads, and we want to see them come and be a part of the kingdom of God, right? But hear this, you can't manipulate it. Now, you can be faithful to your responsibility to share the gospel, to live the gospel, to speak the gospel, to bring it to bear in their lives, but you cannot force its hand. And when you force its hand just to satisfy yourself, you may have undone some things because salvation is what? It's of the Lord. It's His. So be faithful with your responsibility. And I think sometimes, you know, as parents, it's like, you know, I have to be firm and I have to represent God and I have to, I have to make sure that I'm, I'm doing my best to, to make sure that, that wisdom is meted out to those children, especially if they're in places of rebellion. And I have to say, God, this is your child. If you're confident that they are, they are children of yours and, and they're going through times of discipline, you say, God, your hand is here, and your hand is here, and you don't leave them, but you might have to bring them to the brink of death. Now, I don't wish that on anyone. There's a reality that is often what God does. And the hardest people to wrestle with that typically are the parents. And typically is mom. How can we go off into eternity knowing that our children don't know the Lord? What a heartache that is. But there is comfort in knowing. That's, it's a hard comfort, friends. But there's comfort in knowing there's nothing I can do to manipulate it. But salvation is completely God's work. Because then I can rest in a sovereign good, holy, perfect God to do whatever he needs to do to accomplish his purposes. My friends, we don't like discipline. Probably we've never been in the belly of a fish. We may have been in other places. And we may be there now. Remember, look up, look to him, see him in all his glory, be honest, confess, thankful, be humble, and know that he is that God who cares, not only authors your discipline, and ultimately salvation is his thing, responsibility, and goal. Lord, help us today. Lord, we don't, we don't comprehend, Lord, what it is that you're doing in our lives at times, especially in our families and our friends' lives. Sometimes, Lord, we try and represent you and it feels like we're just banging our heads against the wall. It feels like the things that we're trying to, to say, to influence, Lord, just come off wrong and we take so much ownership of that. <laughs> and yet, Lord, you, you demonstrated through your word many times you work in spite of our skill level. Because, Lord, you are the one who is ultimately bringing children to yourself. You are the one who is drawing those whom you love to yourself. And Lord, we can certainly be instruments, and we need to be faithful, Lord, in doing that. But, Lord, help us ultimately to rest in you.
And Lord, if there's someone here who is, who is being squeezed in their heart by the Holy Spirit in an area of sin, Lord, I ask that you would help them to come honestly and confessingly, Lord, thankfully and humbly before you today to restore their walk with you and to rest on your goodness and your grace because you are a great God. You love us and you care for us. So Lord, help us today to learn about you and to adore you for who you are.